are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Great to see all of you this morning, this beautiful morning. I know you guys are looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed after that extra hour of sleep. You just think about that right now. Don't think about the fact that it's going to be dark at 5 p.m. All right, just put that, put that out of your mind, all right? We're going to, we're going to live in this moment here. Um, we're going to be looking at Romans 8 uh, this morning. Such a wonderful section of Scripture. We're actually going to be looking just at 18 through 25. There's so much uh, depth and so much goodness in Romans uh, chapter 8. I'm excited to, to get into it. The title of the sermon is Hope That Sustains Us. Hope. It's a word that we use often, right? Often we use the word hope, though differently from how Scripture uh, uses it. So we say things like, I hope the weather is good this weekend. I hope you have a good day. I hope you feel better. We kind of say it like that. Or as we're sitting on our couch and we're getting ready for um, our, to watch our team play, we say, I hope we show up ready to play today um, as we're comfortably in the confines of our home. Uh, but we, uh, we use it in this optimistic, wishful type way to say, I hope something's going to happen. So we're declaring what we want to happen, though we're not really sure that it will happen. But hope is different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to imagine that things are going to work out okay. But hope is all about placing your trust in facts. It's trusting in God's promises, regardless of our circumstances. And actually in Scripture, the word hope is really, really close to the word faith. At times, it's, it's almost difficult to distinguish between the word hope and the word faith, because faith likewise is grounded in truth. But hope is this kind of faith that has this quality. It looks forward. It's a forward-looking belief. It's a powerful thing, right? Hope is incredibly powerful. Our ability to persevere as believers is tied to our ability to hope in God. And likewise, Hopelessness is an incredibly powerful thing as well. I can't think of something any more debilitating than hopelessness, than losing hope. Difficult to overcome. Hope helps us endure. Hope helps us keep going. I learned a a lot about endurance in the year uh, 2004. Uh, That year I very painfully and slowly uh, shuffled my way uh, 26.2 miles and completed a marathon. Um, And I'm going to pretend to not be offended by some of the surprised look on on your faces here. Um, And I just want you to know that, like, I'm telling you guys that, and I've I've taken away my very best. Like, like I've always won two truths and a lie. Like, anytime we do it in Families Count, and we got to say, hey, two truths and a lie, I say, I've run a marathon. And people go, ah, it's a lie, you know. Uh, But actually, I have. So I've I've taken that away from myself. Um, But if you've trained for any type of 
endurance sport like um, cycling or running, you know that, yeah, it's a physical battle, but really a lot of that battle is, is mentally, right? It's a, it's a mindset, um, and you've got to be able to kind of will yourself over these long periods of time to keep going. And distance runners are notorious for these little motivations, right? These little ways that they think to keep themselves going over these large stretches of time. So maybe in, in this race, I would be looking forward to the next water station or the next time they would, you know, hand out those little energy packs or whatever it is. You're looking forward to that next thing. And so while I ran this marathon in 2004, I ran beside this couple um, and they had developed this really great way um, of spurring each other on. And in the, in the weeks leading up to the race, the husband had memorized um, 26 jokes. And so at each mile marker, he would tell his wife a joke. And so uh, those around them, like myself, kind of became aware of this. And so we kind of started like shuffling on over closer because we wanted to hear the joke too. And so uh, before long, he had kind of developed this uh, kind of this Forrest Gump type crowd around him. And he would, you know, people would go, what's the next joke? And he would say it. And then people would kind of pass it through the crowd. Um, and it was valuable uh, to all of us, even though they were like corny dad jokes, it was valuable um, because it helped us endure. It gave us something to look forward to that even while we were out there uh, for a long time and for me I was out there longer than most um, I couldn't quite beat Oprah Winfrey's time I was trying real hard but I didn't quite beat it um, it gave us something to look forward to the author of Hebrews actually describes our life as a race telling us to run with endurance the race set before us, that our life is a long and grueling journey, and our journey of faith can be long and grueling as well. And when we are suffering, we need hope to keep going. But truthfully, I think if we're honest this morning, some of the Bible's teachings are odd, right? They're strange. If, if you're like me and you grew up in a believing home, that maybe your proximity from an early age uh, to Christian teachings, maybe you don't really connect with how odd some of these things are. But if you just want to step back and think about some of the things said in Scripture, that we need to be willing to lose our life for Christ's sake in order to truly find it. Peculiar thing. Bible teaches that when we're wronged, when we're sinned against, that we don't seek vengeance or retaliation on our enemies, but instead we should seek to feed them and give them something to drink and somehow showing them kindness will heap coals on their head. Peculiar, right? That the way to joy in Scripture isn't through acquiring and hoarding, but we're actually most fulfilled through generosity, through sacrificial giving. That it's not the brash and the bold and the powerful but it's the meek that inherit the earth, right? A lot of strange teachings in Scripture, but perhaps the most strange, in my opinion, is this, that we, brothers and sisters, we who have been redeemed, we who the Lord has called to Himself, we who even have His Spirit, we who have um, the favor of the Most High God on us, we, brothers and sisters, will suffer in this life. We will suffer, and Scripture would say, suffer significantly. So if we were to play a game and make up a religion, this wouldn't be something that we would think of. We wouldn't even think like this, yet this is our path as Christ followers. All through Scripture, it's this way. 
Jesus' example of being uh, sacrificed um, for us, taking up His cross. He's a man of sorrows. He spoke often to His disciples, preparing them for suffering. You consider the fate of His disciples. They endured all kinds of hardships, persecution. and Most were in the end martyred for their faith. Paul's thorn in his flesh, his beatings, his imprisonments. The way he prepared his protégés like Timothy, preparing them to suffer. Peter tells us we shouldn't be surprised when trials come upon us. It's all through Scripture. And we know it to be true, and at times I don't want it to be true, and I seek to live my life for comfort. But this is our unavoidable reality as believers on this earth that we will suffer. And so maybe you're like, hey, I thought there was something in that message title about hope. Like, did you like get off script here? Well, that's why, why we need Romans chapter 8. That's why this reality of suffering in our life is why we need the hope of Romans chapter 8. Let's read verse 18 together again. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans chapter 8, you're probably familiar with this chapter. There's so much goodness there. Early in the chapter, Paul tells us there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. It's wonderful news that if we're in Christ, we've been given a spirit of sonship and we can now call God Abba, Father. We're now co-heirs with Christ. But then in Verse 17, the verse immediately preceding uh, the section of text we're looking at today, uh, starting in verse 18, Paul reminds the believer that we're going to suffer. And so in 18, Paul starts using this comparison. It's almost like an accounting metaphor to where he's putting our, it's like a ledger, right? He's putting our suffering on one side of the ledger, and then he's putting our future hope on the other side of the ledger to kind of see which one is greater. And what Paul determines is that our present suffering is less than our future hope, our future glory. And in fact, the difference between the two is so great that it's not even worth comparing them. It's not worth comparing. It's not close. And so what he's doing is he's offering us, if we're in this time of suffering, he's offering us a way to thoughtfully and hopefully consider our sufferings. I'm reminded of even the suffering of an Olympic athlete, right? The, the training regimen they go through. Oftentimes an Olympic athlete moves away from home. They go to a training center. Their whole life revolves around training for whatever event they're in. These rigorous routines and strict sleep schedules and diet restrictions and rehabbing injuries and doing all of this for years and years and years to compete once every four years. And their event, it may be over in a few days or a few hours or some even just a few seconds. And yet all of this suffering and all of the training that they're enduring doesn't compare to the joy, to the glory of standing on an Olympic podium, getting a medal around your neck, hearing your country's national anthem played. It's not worth comparing. Paul has a similar thing to say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen to what he says. For this light 
and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So particularly in mind for me this morning, or those of you who are here this morning, or maybe those of you watching online who would consider yourselves to be in a season of suffering, in a really hard part in the race, season of trial, season of struggle. And I'm hoping you'll be encouraged this morning, but if you're honest this morning, maybe at this point of the message, Paul's words may sting a bit. Because you're doing everything you can to drag yourself here, and then you're told, hey, your struggles and your suffering doesn't compare, or it's light and momentary. And honestly, it feels anything but light and momentary to you. It feels anything but not worthy of comparison. It feels suffocating and discouraging and maybe even hopeless. And so what I want you to know is that Paul isn't minimizing your suffering here. Don't think this is some ignorant, offhanded comment from someone who doesn't know how to suffer, who can't relate. We know that he suffered and struggled. So don't think of it as him minimizing your suffering. Think of it as him maximizing, lifting up the eternal and future glory and hope that we have waiting for us. And he's saying, no, this suffering is very real and it's very painful, but I want you to expand your ability to consider our future hope on the other side of the ledger. And it's not even worth comparing. He goes on to talk about it more in 19 through 21. Let's read that. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's good for us to remember that God's created world, is, it's good, it's important. It's not just this disposable backdrop in the story of redemption that God will not only redeem us as a people, that He will also redeem creation. The creation's ultimate destiny is not destruction. It's not meaningless. But Paul notices a reality that we can observe today as well. In verse 20, he notices that creation is subjected to futility. It's frustrated. It's decaying. There's pain and imperfection all through creation. It cannot flourish fully in the way that it was intended to, that even though we see beauty and majesty and grandeur in our world, we also notice thorns and thistles, decay, hardships, perversion. So let's trace Paul's train of thought through these verses. Verse 21, what he's saying is that all of creation is going to be restored. It's going to be set free from bondage and corruption. And that creation itself is going to share in the glory of redemption. It's a wonderful thought. All pain and sickness, disability, gone, sin, eradicated, free from viruses, cancer, natural disasters. Creation will be set free from bondage. And in verse 20, we're reminded that that futility and bondage that we see 
It's not the last word, right? That creation is subjected, but it's subjected in hope. Because in verse 19, he writes, creation, quote, waits with eager longing. When's the last time you waited with eager longing for something? The picture in my mind here is of a child, a child on Christmas Eve, filled with anticipation and longing, can't even get to sleep because they're so excited about what's to come. Creation is longing for restoration, for things to be made right. And because of all of that, he can say in verse 18, this glorious picture of what's coming, that we can be encouraged right now because what's coming, we won't even be able to compare what we're experiencing right now with what's coming. So take heart, believer. It's going to be better than we can even imagine. And we eagerly await this reality. At Emmanuel, we have a, a high view of Scripture. We believe that God's Word is an, an inerrant and authoritative. It's God's very Word. I believe this. Um, yet, as Paul begins verse 22, um, I, I find myself wanting to kind of like step in and, uh, and help him out a little bit or like kind of serve as his, his PR guy because Paul starts venturing out in verse 22 on this, this perilously thin limb. And he starts entering uh, a territory that, that men do well not to enter. And Paul begins writing about the pain of childbirth. Um, and so one might reason, you, you might need to experience the pain of childbirth before comparing something to the pain of childbirth. Um, I was having the thought, Paul's clearly a single man here, right? Um, a married man would never use this metaphor. We would, we would know much better than that. Um, but mothers, if we can just cut him a bit of slack here, hear him out, I think there's something beautiful for us in this text. Because in his defense, I think Paul is right. I think that labor and childbirth is the perfect metaphor in this instance. Because I ask you this, what else better than labor and childbirth, what else better illustrates enduring, excruciating pain because of the joy that's on the other side of that pain? What's a better picture of that? The motherhood. A mother accepts that pain and her uh, body changing and carrying that baby for nine months and this hard to get comfortable and hard to go to sleep. She accepts all of that because she longs to meet her baby. And this profound pain results in new life and something new, an eternal person, an immortal person made in the image of God has now been brought into the world. It's the beauty of motherhood. And this labor pain, it's specific, right? It's a pain that's accomplishing something. And it's a pain that is forward-looking. It's even a hopeful pain. It's enduring a pain, demonstrating what it's like to long for what's to come. That's a great metaphor for what's going on in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And he continues in verse 23 that it's not only creation, 
but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So when he gets to this verse, Paul shifts that metaphor just a bit from childbirth to adoption. And he's saying we, we are groaning as we await our full adoption to have our bodies redeemed. And there's, there's tension in this text, and it's, it's really all throughout the New Testament. It's this tension that you may notice. Theologians call it this already not yet concept. It's all through the New Testament that God's kingdom is already here, but it's not here in full. And so there's a sense in which we've already realized the benefits. You and I, brothers and sisters, we've already realized the benefits of being adopted into God's family. We've tasted what it's like. Paul says here that we've received the first fruit, the Spirit. There's an already sense that we are co-heirs with Christ that we do get to experience peace and joy and satisfaction to some degree already, His kingdom has come. And so it says that in verse 15 of this chapter. Listen to how how different these verses are. Verse 15, Romans 8, 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Already we've received that. But there's a not yet to our lives as well. We don't have it in full yet. We can't fully grasp it. We know the reality is coming, but it isn't here yet. That His kingdom is being ushered in, but it has not come in full. So verse 15 says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. But then verse 23 says, We ourselves who have the first fruit of the spirits grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a sense in which we have been adopted by God, but man, we're waiting for that day of full glorification, the redemption of our bodies when all things will be made new. And this, this angst of living in this reality is what makes it hard as believers. That much of like what we talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes is that we're these eternal creatures with, with eternity written on our hearts and we're living in this decaying world. So we look forward with hope. John Stott wrote many years ago that we are living, quote, between two worlds. That's what makes it difficult as believers at times. That one day, what we experience in part will be realized in full. Knowing that we have the first fruits of the spirits, but there's a time of fullness coming. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that God put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so we wait eagerly for that day. When, as he says in verse 24 and 25, that our hope will be made sight. Let's read those together. Verse 24, for, this, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Christians live in this certain future hope. We don't hope things happen as if we don't know how the the story is going to end, but we hope with certainty, 
hoping and longing for the day when our faith is made sight, that we can't see it with our eyes yet, that the glory and beauty of a redeemed world, our own bodies redeemed and free from sin and death and decay, all of this, fully realizing this, our redemption, our adoption of being free from suffering and pain and not just us, all of creation, this together is the great Christian hope. So we're hoping in and waiting for this day that He's going to make all things new. So brother, sister, maybe you're at a really difficult spot in the race. Maybe you are in the thick of it right now. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe it looks like struggling in relationships with family, with a spouse, with a child. You're struggling financially, struggling in your career. Maybe you're struggling physically with your health. Maybe you're struggling mentally or emotionally or all sorts of burdens that we can have. Maybe you're in the thick of it right now. How do you keep going? Maybe you're struggling because the the things that seem so clear and the the truth claims of Scripture that you once clung to, now there's a shroud of, of doubt over them in your mind. Maybe you're struggling because you're not sure that you want to go through the heartache and hard work of living in community with God's children. You're struggling with that idea. What do you do to keep going in this race? How do we keep putting one foot in front of the other? The answer, it's not a trite answer. It's not just a Sunday school answer to to wave off your problems. But the answer is we continue by hoping in God's certain future. By believing, fighting for belief, even asking God to help us in our unbelief. That that belief set on Scripture would be like a, just like a handhold, a, a firm footing, a place to anchor yourself in a tough part of the race. Knowing, thinking accurately about our suffering, that all of our suffering and brokenness, it will be swallowed up one day. The future redemption of the world, it will engulf the entire universe. And the key to enduring through all of this in a hopeful way is to learn patience. Patience. This incredibly simple yet elusive fruit of the Spirit. Patience. That we can thoughtfully consider what we know to be true about our suffering and patiently lean into that reality. Lean into it. And patiently hope in God. And as we hope through our trials, through our suffering, as we cling to hope, God develops Christ-likeness in us. And it looks a lot like patience. He develops it through trials. So brothers and sisters, let's set our hope on something sure and steady, something deep, and lasting, we're sustained and we're kept through hoping in God. Let's pray to Him now. Father, it gives us great comfort knowing that You sympathize with us in our weaknesses. 
Father, it gives us great comfort knowing that you've given us one another during this race. Father, we're also comforted just by the nearness of your Spirit. Father, that you are not far from any of us. Father, that your ear is inclined to us. Father, that you, you promise to sustain us, to carry us, to provide all of our needs. But yet, Father, we, we must confess that at times, Lord, we struggle. Lord, at times we doubt. Lord, at times we, we just find motivation difficult. Lord, it seems that the easier and better way would just be to give up. And Lord, in those times, Lord, by your grace, would your, would your spirit serve us? Lord, would you call to mind these precious truths of Romans chapter 8? Lord, that we would set our feet on the firm and sure hope that we have in the gospel. Father, we recognize that this world isn't as it should be, Lord. Use us in this community and in this world. Lord, we look forward to a day when you will make everything right. We hope for that day. Lord, keep us until that day. Help us persevere till that day. Lord, keep each and every one of these precious brothers and sisters in this room until that day. Help them through their times of struggle and trial. Help them through the doubts in their faith and the, the things that they're wrestling with. Lord, be near to them. Lord, we trust that you will do all of these things. We trust it in the name of Christ. Amen. from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.